Dovii, no provii. Trust, but verify. For these are the only incontrovertible facts that I know. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. We have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before. Another plane has just hit it hit another building. Historical diversions. Where do you think you go when you die? Kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Maybe a little too metaphysical for this episode, at least. I meant more literally. Where do you think your body will go when you die? It's not an easy question for many of us. Some of us will be chemically preserved and buried. Some of us will have our usable body parts stripped and given away so that they can help others who are still alive. Far fewer of us will be on the dissection table, hopefully providing some poor med student with real-world experience so that they don't screw up surgery on someone alive. Some of us will be burned to ash and scattered into the wind, remaining only in the memories of those we loved. In the Mississippian world, there were those who were buried intact, but others were buried in what are called bundles, where the skull and long bones were placed in animal skins and buried. And there were other methods, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. What we believe in life often dictates what happens to us when we die. In the previous episode, I discussed the Mississippians believed in a three-tiered cosmos, with one of the tiers as the sky or the heavens above. The Mississippians were not the first Native American culture that paid attention to the heavens. In fact, it'd be odd if they were. The Hopewell in particular appeared to design their sites with astronomical alignments in mind, but they weren't the only ones. One structure that allowed even the less sophisticated to predict the passage of celestial objects is called a woodhenge. Unlike creating massive mounds, creating a woodhenge wouldn't require a substantial labor force, but they would have to know what they were doing. A woodhenge is a series of wooden posts with one in the center and many more to the outside in a circle. Depending on what was being tracked, the posts would visually line up with a particular object at particular times. This could have agricultural or religious significance. There were multiple woodhenges at Cahokia in different times. Out of the multiple wood henges that were built, there wasn't a uniform standard that we found from their construction, but all wood henges we have found had alignments to solstices and equinoxes, essentially creating a solar calendar. The largest wood henge, Woodhenge 3, is recreated at the site today, but the construction originally was around 1000 AD. In fact, from the wood henge recreation looking east, you could see where the sun comes up through the terraces of Monk's Mound highlighting the importance of the equinoxes. That woodhenge consisted of 48 red cedar tree trunks that were 20 feet tall above the ground to create a 410-foot diameter circle. Another woodhenge was built toward the southern end of the site, similar in size to Woodhenge 3, and built around 50 years earlier at 950 AD. Prior to its official discovery, post holes for this woodhenge were predicted to be on top of a nondescript mound called Mound 72. 
Mound 72 is a mound that was apparently considered so important that it actually didn't show up on some early maps of the city. But there's a reason why this mound has been given so much attention. And it isn't because of its 140 foot long, 70 foot wide, and 7 foot tall dimensions. In fact, compared to other mounds at Cahokia, that's downright tiny. I discussed in the last episode that ridgetop mounds were a series of mounds that were covered by a larger one. This knowledge came from the excavation of Mound 72. There were three mounds that were encased within this ridgetop structure, but one mound was the focal point. It's called the Beaded Burial, or the Birdman Burial, but its official name is Mound 72 Sub 1, and it is arguably one of the most unique burials in all of the Americas. At the center of the feature is a man laid on top of some 20,000 conch shell beads from the Gulf of Mexico. The beads were in the shape of a thunderbird, a known Mississippian symbol, and was likely from a blanket or cape that decomposed long ago. Buried right below the man was a woman of a similar age, and nearby was a burial of six other people, probably the couple's retainers or other persons of importance. And still elsewhere within the mound, another group of seven people with offerings. I use the word offerings because the amount present is amazing. For starters, there's 15 chunky discs. I talked about chunky and its significance in the last episode. It's rare to find one disc at a Mississippian site. To find 15 in one place is unique to say the least, but it doesn't stop there. There were also multiple rolls of copper sourced from Lake Superior. These were prestige goods that were probably rolled around chunky sticks or for royal scepters. There were also two bushels of mica from the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina. Typically, only little bits of mica are found within jewelry. The amount found here is outrageous. There were also hundreds of unused arrow points in two piles, and even more arrowheads that were originally part of arrows, but their shafts had long since decayed. These arrowhead piles were aligned to specific directions and were deliberately placed. Where did these arrowheads come from? The materials and styles came from Illinois, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. Clearly, these people were honored to a very high degree. And if that was all Mound 72 had to offer, that would make it unique in itself. But it gets darker. In another mound close by, called Mound 72 Sub 2, there was another series of burials. One had 21 people buried on a platform above the remains of a charnel house. This included some intact bodies, some bundle burials, and many loose bones. Now, here's where things start to get weird. Another burial contained 19 women, with additional offerings of over 36,600 marine shell beads and some 450 arrowheads, dumped in this time. Another had 24 women, buried at a 90-degree angle to the ground in two layers. Noticing a trend? Many of these burials were lined with sand or some other lining. These were orderly procedures, and special in some way. And now we get to Mound 72 Sub 3, and what the excavations found were... gruesome. One burial contained the bodies of four men, with their arms interlocked at the elbows, but their heads and hands were removed. Not separated over time, as they were never found. Removed. We don't know the reason for this type of burial, but there was another similar burial at a place called Dixon Mounds in Illinois, another Mississippian settlement. 
But those four men had pots where their heads should have been. We don't know why it was done, but it's not random. Another burial pit contained 53 women, two rows deep and two rows across. All but one were between 15 and 25 years old, and the remaining one was roughly 35 years old, a possible matron or leader of the group. All of these other burials appear to be part of planned rituals or ceremonies, remains laid down with care. This amount of female-specific burials, without obvious injuries, is not natural. It's speculated that they could have been poisoned, suffocated, strangled, or had their throats cut prior to death, but the skeletal remains don't give us the details. But there's one last burial that I'll tell you about, and it conjures up images of the Holocaust in my mind. In this pit, there were 39 men and women that were brutally murdered. Some were shot with arrows. Some had broken jaws, fractured skulls, and heads decapitated. These people were shoved into the pit, not respectfully placed. We know that some of them weren't fully dead when they went in, because some had their fingers grasping into the sand-lined pit, probably attempting to get up over the suffocating pressure of the corpses around them. Above this layer of victims, 15 people were laid to rest on litters. The foundation of their tomb was made in part from the bodies of those murder victims. If you think I was exhaustive in my descriptions of the burials in Mound 72, I actually wasn't. All in all, there were nearly 300 bodies entombed within several burials in Mound 72, mostly women. And what's wild is that the mound wasn't completely excavated, so there's likely more to discover under the surface. At the beginning of this episode, I asked you what you think will happen to your body when you die. I wonder how many of those laid to rest in Mound 72 thought they would end up entombed with hundreds of other people in macabre and very public spectacles. What was the purpose of Mound 72? Mound 72 was likely a place of significant importance in the city. The dates of the burials were right before the city's Big Bang and some after. The religious significance is clear. You don't offer up inferior sacrifices, you offer what is of great value. Clearly these people had some sort of value. It also seems clear that the brutal murders were some sort of political power play. What better way to send a message than to kill any opposition in a public spectacle? One academic theory that hypothesized a reason for the construction of Monk's Mound was the Panopticon theory. Simply put, it's the architecture of power projection. In other contexts, it's been used to evaluate the structures of prisons and forts. The large mounds with their high elevation would have exuded an image of permanent and omnipresent observation, a 11th century surveillance state. While Mound 72 didn't have the monumentality that other constructions in Cahokia had, it certainly sent a message of the importance of the ruling elite, and that dissent would not go unpunished. There were other ridgetop mounds like the Powell and Rattlesnake Mounds that were much larger than Mound 72, but much less is known about them. I'll talk about their fate later. Current national, state, and organization policies today make excavating known burials much more difficult. The excavations of Mound 72 showed that institutional internal violence occurred within Cahokia. 
there was another Cahokian feature that alludes to external threats to the city, either real or perceived. Around 1175 AD, after Cahokia's population started to decline, and about a century after Cahokia's explosion began, a large palisade was constructed around what archaeologists call the Central Ceremonial Precinct. This area encompassed 200 acres and included the Grand Plaza, Monk's Mound, and nearly 20 other mounds within its boundaries. This palisade, or stockade, was no simple fence. It was nearly two miles long in total. Each construction was estimated to use 20,000 oak and hickory trees, trees that were chopped down with stone axes and transported two to five miles. Guard towers were placed at roughly 89-foot intervals, and some section of the palisade might have led to dead ends, trapping invaders to be prime targets to the defending archers above. Construction of this barrier cut through existing neighborhoods and plazas, even leaving otherwise elite homes and buildings outside of it. This was yet another example of Cahokian urban planning and renewal, and a massive labor project in its own right. And it wasn't a one-time thing. I had just mentioned each construction. The palisade was rebuilt three more times within a hundred years, with a different guard tower construction each time. Hundreds of thousands of work hours are estimated for each construction. Whatever danger Cahokia thought was outside the walls, they were so concerned that they needed to continually fortify against it. What could have been such a threat? Who all was out there? Cahokia's trade network appears to have influence far outside Cahokia proper. Cahokian artifacts and style of social organization are found throughout the eastern U.S., as well as areas further north and west, but no indication that it reached as far south as the American Southwest or Mesoamerica. Personally, I find it too intriguing to ignore the similarities to Mesoamerica, and to my untrained eye, Mississippian art could be found in Mexico, and I'd be none the wiser. But there's no smoking gun that proves a connection between the Mississippians and Mexico. No obsidian or incontrovertible trade goods have been found. Only similarities in their societal organization, extensive use of corn agriculture, human sacrifice, and artistic symbolism. This could be explained in other ways than trade and contact, but it's an interesting possibility. Another interpretation of Cahokia's trade network was that it wasn't primarily a trade network at all. Maybe these traders were actually emissaries that were the recruiters for the Cahokian brand. Look at what we can offer you if you join us. The Cahokian way of life would certainly appear novel to any woodland culture that came into contact with them. Think of these Cahokian brand ambassadors as political and religious missionaries looking for converts and allies. There's actually a Mesoamerican example of this. The Aztecs would send out what were called Pochteca traders. On the surface, they were emissaries and merchants, but they covertly gathered reconnaissance and, if necessary, destabilized settlements prior to armed conflict should the people concerned refuse to surrender to the Aztec Empire. Another Cahokian hypothesis is that the evidence of Cahokian emissaries weren't really emissaries from Cahokia at all but were refugees that were exiled from their homes by the city's prominent power base. The interpretation of Mound 72 as a show of political force and consolidation of power to one elite family would seem to support this. If you were kicked out of your country, 
you might still hold on to aspects of your culture long after you left. I've talked previously about how Cahokia's messaging encouraged immigration and was the focal point of a new and exciting way of life. If you were on the good side of the Cahokian leadership, it might have been really awesome to live there. I actually see parallels to the American cities of New York and Los Angeles a few centuries later, where people from all over the planet went to find their new place in life. But this appeal was short-lived. If Cahokia was as awesome as we've said it was, how did Cahokia fall? And unfortunately for researchers, it isn't obvious what caused Cahokia's fall, but it happened quickly. Nearly as quick as its expansion, the city appears to have declined in a complete reversal of fortune. It is important to note that the Mississippians were not a unified polity or culture in the way like the Assyrians, Romans, or Aztecs were. They were more like the ancient Greeks like Athens and Sparta, or the Maya where competition and infighting between communities was common. Warfare in the Mississippian world is probably a bit of a misnomer. It wasn't what was happening in Europe and Asia where you could have literally thousands of people in organized formations attacking each other. Mississippian warfare in North America was closer to organized raids in force designed to terrorize the populace into submission. Despite this, it's apparent that Cahokia was a dominant force during its heyday, but we don't have evidence that Cahokia had a military-style occupation over other Mississippians, but the threat could have been their ace in the hole. It seems that Cahokia had its power primarily as an important but local political capital, a site of immense religious importance and trade. There were other important Mississippian settlements, Aztalan in Wisconsin seems to have risen and fallen as Cahokia's sister settlement. Spiro in Oklahoma, Moundville in Alabama, and Etowah in Georgia were also some of the larger ones. Based on the symbolism found on their artifacts, the Mississippian culture exalted combat and war. Violence was not something the Cahokians shied away from. Mound 72 is proof of that. As described in the previous episode, SECC iconography has warriors with severed heads in their possession. The palisade built at Cahokia was a massive public works project. There was likely a social component as to why they created it, an unambiguous way to separate the truly elite from the commoners, but you don't put up huge fortifications like those unless you're expecting violence. In fact, every other major and many minor Mississippian settlements also built their own palisades around the same time Cahokia did. Warfare was becoming more and more common in the Mississippian world. But the problem is there's no evidence of violence or destruction at Cahokia. If Cahokia projected military power by ruling with an iron fist, it didn't seem to blow back on them when the city declined. Sites like Aztalan and East St. Louis had evidence of destructive fires, but not Cahokia. And while social unrest can't be discounted, there doesn't appear to be a revolt of catastrophic proportions within Cahokia proper. A major factor that almost certainly contributed to Cahokia's fall was resource depletion and environmental degradation. Large-scale farming dramatically affected the environment around Cahokia. It isn't clear that Cahokians knew about crop rotation, but there was no evidence for fertilizer. The crop yields would get lower and lower as nutrients were depleted from the soil over time. Clearing more area for farmland would be needed to keep the same output. 
the building of the palisades, houses, and even firewood for each family hearth would have led to clearing forests around Cahokia, leaving the area prone to flooding, though the geologic evidence is unclear whether droughts or flooding affected the area more. With the forest cleared around Cahokia, over time fewer deer and other high-value protein sources would be available nearby, increasing the populace's dependence on corn. Cahokia's reliance on corn, while invaluable in its rise, could have made it the victim of its own success. The elites had access to high-protein sources, but the overall population relied primarily on corn, and there wasn't enough nutritional value in corn to sustain good health outcomes. Think of diseases like iron efficiency anemia. Infant mortality in the Mississippian period actually increased, and life expectancy decreased when compared to the previous woodland time frame. Malnutrition would have led to an increase in disease. In the ancient world, sanitation as we'd understand it didn't exist, and thousands of people were living within a relatively small area. The smoke from the hundreds of hearths, stagnant ponds in the borrow pits, and swamp miasma would have created really poor air quality. Some borrow pits that have been excavated were filled with trash from ritual feasting, and some still stunk horribly, even when excavated hundreds of years later. Some of these pits where food waste accumulated could have also been latrines as well. The Mississippians were the distant ancestors to many peoples such as the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, Ho-Chunk, and more. What's bizarre is that there isn't a record, written or oral, that describes a city like Cahokia or anything like it in their traditions. It's possible that there was a collective memory of it, and it was wiped out when Europeans and their diseases decimated large portions of the Native American populations. But there's another possibility. What if the people that lived through the Cahokian experiment hated it? What if they wanted to move on and simply forget about it? I'm a sucker for monumental architecture, so a place like Cahokia is a fascinating place to me. Based on what archaeologists have found with human remains, immigration was a large part of Cahokia's growth and expansion. But what if the Cahokian experience didn't live up to the marketing material? What if the Cahokian leadership lost their credibility with the populace? In later Mississippian cultures, and frankly many ancient cultures in general, the paramount chief or leader was the intercessor to the gods. The people's support of their leader hinged on harvest being good, and lives being prosperous. How many plagues, poor harvests, or calamities would you have to endure before doubting the credibility of your leadership? What if the Cahokians, instead of rebelling through violence, simply voted with their feet instead? Even though the palisade was rebuilt multiple times, it didn't appear to have been destroyed, just rebuilt and redesigned. There's no evidence for citywide violence or riots. What if the threat of surveillance hypothesized by the panopticon theory, meant nothing. Wouldn't you just leave a prison if you could just walk out the front door? It seems like many people did just that. Cahokia's expansion came from mass immigration, but its fall came from migration. Food surpluses were dependent on a large labor force providing it, and without one, the effects started snowballing. When you don't have a large labor force, you can't build huge public works. When people started migrating away from Cahokia, this likely created a huge strain on city resources, 
no more food surpluses. Another factor could also be a public perception one. If a city loses a significant chunk of its populace, what does that say about the city they're leaving? People migrate for new opportunities, and other Mississippian settlements increased in population while Cahokia was hemorrhaging people. As described earlier, there was a large structure on the summit of Monk's Mound. It would have been visible for miles around. During excavations, only post holes and wall fragments remained. My own and completely non-expert hypothesis? Instead of destroying the building, the Cahokian citizens just took it down and repurposed everything. A metaphorical middle finger to the authority of the Cahokian leadership. Whatever caused Cahokia's downfall, the city went out with a whimper. By 1350 AD, Cahokia was completely abandoned, a ghost town, a shadow of its former glory. After Cahokia's abandonment by the Mississippians, it took a couple hundred years for the site to be significantly settled again. Why is Cahokia named Cahokia? I never answered that in the last episode. It was named after the sub-tribe of the Illinois Indian Confederation that inhabited the area when Europeans started arriving. As stated earlier, Monk's Mound was actually named for French monks that set up shop there. In 1811, Henry-Marie Brackenridge, a journalist, lawyer, and future congressman, visited the Cahokia site. He detailed his experience in his book, From Views of the Mississippi, in his own words, quote, The mounds or pyramids appear to me to belong to a period different from the others. They are much more ancient, and are easily distinguished from the barrows by their size and the design which they manifest. Remains of palisaded towns are found in their vicinity, which may be accounted for from the circumstance of the mounds occupying the most eligible situations for villages, or from the veneration of the Indians for whatever appears extraordinary. From the growth of trees on some of them, they show an antiquity of at least several hundred years. The Indians have no tradition as to the founder of them. Quote, I crossed the Mississippi at St. Louis, and after passing through the wood which borders the river, about a half mile in width, entered an extensive open plain. In fifteen minutes I found myself in the midst of a group of mounds, mostly of a circular shape, and at a distance resembling enormous haystacks scattered through a meadow. One of the largest, which I ascended, was about 200 paces in circumference at the bottom, the form nearly square, though it had evidently undergone considerable alteration from the washing of the rains. The top was level, with an area sufficient to contain several hundred men. Further, also detailing the prejudices of the time, quote, Pursuing my walk along the banks of the Cahokia, I passed eight others in the distance of three miles, before I arrived at the principal assemblage. When I reached the foot of the largest mound, I was struck with a degree of astonishment, not unlike that which is experienced in contemplating the Egyptian pyramids, and could not help exclaiming, What a stupendous pile of earth! To heap up such a mass must have required years and the labors of thousands. It stands immediately on the bank of the Cahokia, and on the side next to it is covered with lofty trees. Were it not for the regularity and design which it manifests, the circumstance of it being on alluvial ground, and the other mounds scattered around it, we could scarcely believe it the work of human hands, in a country which we have, generally believed, never to have been inhabited by any but a few lazy Indians. It is evident this could never have been the work of thinly scattered tribes. 
End quote. He wrote to Thomas Jefferson about their shared mutual interest in Native American sites in 1813. He also published that account in 1817, and the general public's response was that of complete indifference, and the site would suffer for that indifference. His quotes also allude to what was later called the Mound Builder myth. This view was that there were one or more ancient races or civilization in the Americas that built these monumental sites. Europeans, Africans, Hebrews, Aztecs, and Atlanteans, among others, had been proposed as these lost civilizations, but then hordes of barbarians, who we now know as Native Americans, overwhelmed and slaughtered them, leaving the sites abandoned. While that view certainly has racist and bigoted overtones and motivation, the idea that descendants couldn't accomplish what the ancestors did is not without historical precedent. In fact, history is filled with civilizations rising and falling, with others inevitably filling the void. In the 1800s, Cahokia's archaeology consisted of sporadic grave digging and treasure hunting on privately owned property. By the turn of the 20th century, the prevailing scientific view of Monk's Mound was that the site was a, quote, alluvial deposit. Fancy science words for, it's natural, nothing to see here. Thanks to the excavations of explorer Warren King Moorhead in the 1920s, the true nature of Monk's Mound, Rattlesnake Mound, a large ridgetop mound, and Cahokia as a whole was revealed. But the site's troubles were not over. During several centuries since it was abandoned, Many mounds were bulldozed to create fill dirt to level the depressions in the ground. In that area, many ponds and pits were filled in to create usable farmland. Ironically, many of those ponds and pits were probably created as borrow pits when the mounds were first constructed. The Powell Mound, uh, the second largest mound at Cahokia, and another ridgetop one at that, was essentially destroyed in the early 1930s. The Powell family had tried to sell their entire land to the state, but the state didn't have the money, nor did they want the entire property. The Powell family didn't want a lollipop-shaped area in their property removed either. The landowners feared eminent domain, and the state had actually started the condemnation process. Understandably ticked at the state, the family opted to destroy the mound and get the fill dirt for usable farmland instead. What occurred during the destruction is what is called salvage archaeology. Salvage archaeology is what happens when a site is going to be destroyed anyway, so essentially dig up what you can before something more important happens instead. Salvage archaeology was actually pretty common at Cahokia, in areas not contained within the protected park. In the early 1940s, the Works Progress Administration, part of FDR's New Deal, performed some excavations, but that was put to a halt after the United States' entry into World War II. In 1941, the Mounds Place subdivision was built within the Grand Plaza. The trope about houses being built on an ancient Indian burial ground has an unfortunate ring of truth. The state of Illinois bought the land back in the 1980s to expand the current park site, but just creating the subdivision destroyed valuable archaeological evidence. In the 1950s and 60s, Cahokian archaeology continued again in earnest, but much of it still salvage archaeology because of the construction of Interstates 55, 70, and 270. The plans for these cut right through the Cahokia site. Thankfully, the tide turned starting in the late 1960s and 1970s 
where meticulous controlled excavations were the order of the day, and salvage archaeology was becoming far less frequent. Suffice it to say, everything I've talked about from this podcast series came from archaeologists who have devoted their lives to giving Cahokia its due. People like Preston Holder, Melvin Fowler, Tim Palkatet, William Eisminger, and countless others appear in the literature frequently, and the impact of their work cannot be overstated. What is Cahokia today? At the risk of sounding like a paid spokesman for the Cahokia Mound State Historic Site, the site of Illinois today has done a wonderful job protecting and preserving Cahokia. Created in the 1920s, the park today encompasses 2,200 of the 4,000-plus acres from its heyday. It was named a U.S. National Historic Landmark in 1965 and was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1982. It's joined the likes of the Pyramids of Giza, Chichen Itza, the Taj Mahal, Easter Island, and many others. It has miles of beautiful trails around the site, and I've had the pleasure of walking around most of it. I'd also like to speak to the large interpretive center. I've heard it contains artifacts, recreations, and the like. But it's been closed for the holidays or remodeling every time I've been there. Who knows? Maybe I'll get in there someday. I've personally been to the Cahokia site three times, and while Monk's Mound was what lured me there to begin with, the entire site never ceases to amaze me. Seeing the fireflies dance around Monk's Mound at dusk is something I tried to capture on film, but can only appreciate in my mind's eye. I hope, sooner rather than later, that Cahokia truly gets its historical due as the first city of its kind, a place truly worthy of mention. And now, at long last, you can at least say you've heard of it. Hi everyone, thank you for listening to Historical Diversions. If you enjoyed this episode, your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, positive comments, and even just telling your friends about us helps. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., but the mothership is historicaldiversions.com. You can find show notes, ways to support, and other fun info on there. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was written and produced by your host, through Historical Diversions LLC. Any other rights belong to their respective owners.